This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Chapter 42. I'm going to read the first five verses, and then we'll work our way through the chapter as we, as we go. Hear the word of God, Genesis chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Let us pray. Lord, we ask tonight as we study uh, your word that your spirit would guide us into a deeper understanding of your truth. And Father, we thank you for this particular passage tonight. We pray that you would nourish our souls on it uh, and inform our minds, encourage our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Kent Hughes, in his study of Genesis, has this to say about Joseph's brothers. Apart from Benjamin, Joseph's brothers were a miserable lot. Sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, were guilty of premeditated genocide in the slaughter of the unsuspecting Shechemites, chapter 34. Number one son, Reuben, had committed incest with his father's concubine in an attempt to secure ascendancy over his father, Jacob, chapter 35. Next, all ten of them had taken young Joseph and stripped him and beaten him and thrown him into a pit with fratricidal intent, which was averted only by passing caravan and his sale into Egypt, chapter 37. Number four son, Judah, then impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who had disguised herself as a Canaanite prostitute, chapter 38. So by any estimation, these patriarchs-to-be were less than promising as bearers of the promise of Abraham and root stock for the covenant nation that would emerge from Egypt at the Exodus. And he's certainly right. Uh, as, you, as you read through Genesis, it is rather, uh, in many ways, a sordid picture and not a very promising start to the nation that God had promised to Abraham. Well, we pick up here in chapter 42, Uh, of course, in 41, we saw uh, Joseph's ascendancy, his rise to power, uh, going from the years spent in prison and servitude and then imprisoned uh, on false charges and then uh, brought into the presence of Pharaoh, uh, entered his service, as 46 tells us, at the age of 30. Uh, It had been 13 years since he had come to Egypt by way of that Midianite caravan sold into slavery by his brothers. So a long 
time has passed, and yet in God's providence now Joseph, as we saw last time, uh, reigns over Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, tremendous power, uh, tremendous influence, position, wealth. And uh, as the Lord had revealed through Joseph, as Joseph himself was quite uh, careful to maintain, God had revealed these things, God would give the meaning, God was going to do it. Uh, the seven years of abundance had come. They had enjoyed that time, great years in Egypt, great years for Joseph. He was married, he had children, things were going well. But of course, as the dream also indicated, seven years of famine that would be so severe that the seven good years would be all but forgotten as the famine consumed that abundance. But the Lord had placed Joseph where he was in order to save the nation of Egypt, in order to save the nations around them, and perhaps, first and foremost, to save his own family. And that brings us then to chapter 42, verse 1. Uh, this is kind of one of those meanwhile back at the ranch moments. And we've been following Joseph and his, his uh, slavery, imprisonment, now rise to power. And meanwhile back at the ranch, chapter 42, verse 1, when Jacob... And all of a sudden we're back with Jacob, his father, back in Canaan. When Jacob learned there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, What are you doing standing there looking at each other? Get down to Egypt and get us some grain. Apparently either indecision or indolence, whatever it was, it's just kind of a you know, humorous picture. They're just kind of standing and looking at each other. It reminded me, reading this, thinking about it, it reminds me of um, the Jungle Book. And the, the two vultures, remember in the, the vultures, they may have names, I don't remember their names, and they're sitting there in the tree and one of them says, what do you want to do? And the other says, I don't know, what do you want to do? And he says, well, I don't know, what do you want to do? Man, that's kind of the picture you get here. Why do you, this Hebrew is exactly what it says here. Why do you look at it? What are you doing standing there staring at each other? There's grain to be had in Egypt. Apparently word had gotten out uh, that there was food there. Uh, we're informed uh, in verse 5, the famine was now in the land of Canaan. It was a bad situation. And uh, so he says, verse 2, Behold, I have heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down, buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Now, what do you think Joseph's brother's reaction would be one, when they hear the word Egypt. Two, when their father says to them, you go to Egypt. Now, we don't know at this point what we learn later in the chapter, uh, but that combined with Jacob's refusal to send the youngest, Benjamin, uh, Joseph's brother, Joseph's true full brother, uh, by Rachel, um, no doubt pricked their consciences just a little bit. Because we read that Jacob feared for Benjamin. He feared that harm might happen to him. Now, the natural thing to think is that he loves Benjamin. He's afraid to send him on this journey from Canaan down to Egypt, that something might happen to him. But the question is, at whose hand? He already sent one of his sons to go and check on these guys, and that son never came back. 
The story given to the press and to their father was that a wild animal ate him. After all, they had the, the coat of many colors, this beautiful coat uh, that was bloodied. His, Jacob's reaction was, well, a wild animal has torn up my son. But Jacob knew his sons. He knew these boys, now men. And he had a long time to think about what happened to Joseph. And in fact, as we jump ahead here to verse 36, Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. So you can't help but wonder, uh, given his refusal to send Benjamin, he feared that harm might happen to him, that he feared that harm might come to him from his own sons, from Benjamin's older brothers. At any rate, it's possible something else could happen to him. But the instructions to go to Egypt, the refusal to send now his youngest son uh, with them, no doubt got their attention at the very least and perhaps produced some pangs of conscience here. Now, as we go through this passage, we see a progression in the brothers, uh, a very healthy progression. And the first stage of that progression is godly guilt. They begin to experience some measure of guilt, uh, perhaps intensifying, because it seems they felt a little bit of uneasiness, not to say guilt, all along in what they had done with their brother. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. We know that. Back to Egypt here. Joseph is in charge. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognize them. Significant moment, is it not? Because right here we have the fulfillment of Joseph's first dream. Just in typical Hebrew narrative fashion, quite understated. Not even mentioned that it fulfilled the dream. We're just supposed to recognize that and acknowledge that in this understated way, that dream that really set all this off to begin with uh, was fulfilled. The brothers came, they entered in, they see this Egyptian ruler, authority, and uh, perhaps hating to do it, but recognizing due protocol, they bowed down before him, and just like that, the dream that the Lord had revealed to Joseph, unlikely as it seemed at the time, outlandish, even arrogant as it seemed at the time, was fulfilled. And we read that Joseph, verse 7, saw his brothers and recognized them But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to him. And before we look at that, it's worth just kind of exploring the dynamics here. I can remember reading this as a child and certainly understanding why Joseph would recognize his brothers, but not really understanding why his brothers would not recognize him. This is his brother. Surely they would know him, but they don't. Well, there's some good reasons why they don't know him uh, and why he would immediately recognize them. One is the passage of time. Joseph was 17 when they last saw him. He is 30 now, so he's considerably older, but so were they. However, they were already older than Joseph. They would not have changed as much in their appearance as Joseph did going from 17 to 30. But even at that, Joseph would have other reasons to recognize them. For one reason, there were 10 of them. For another reason, no doubt speaking among themselves, he picked up their Hebrew language and would have recognized it, would have understood it, as, as comes into play later in, in Joseph's story here in Genesis. And there are other reasons they would not have recognized Joseph. 
For one thing, Joseph was clean-shaven after the manner of the Egyptians. Joseph was dressed in the garb of an aristocrat. Uh, and Joseph was in a high, a position of high power, which was the last place that his brothers would have expected to find Joseph. One wonders, did they, did they anticipate running into Joseph? Such things happen. Uh, talking to, uh, Rich Heller this morning, they went down to Disney World. He said when they were going down there, they, uh, stopped in Valdosta to eat, and lo and behold, ran into Curtis Welburn, who's a member of our church, is down there at Valdosta State, was working in the restaurant. And Rich, Chalk that up as a pastoral shepherding call. Uh, so, we, yes, you can run into people, and maybe Joseph's brothers thought, well, uh, you know, it's possible we could see him, but not very likely. Most likely, if, even if he's still alive, and the life of a slave could be brutal and short, uh, even if he were still alive, he would probably be in some household or business slaving away in obscurity. The land would be flooded with people coming to buy grain. Egypt was... A big place, and uh, so extremely unlikely they would run into him, and certainly didn't expect to run into him as the one who was in this position of authority. And so he recognized them, but they did not recognize him. Now, I think there's a good bit left unsaid here, because immediately Joseph appears to have a plan. One might think that his first reaction upon seeing them perhaps was a startle, even wondering what to do. And it may be that this plan hatched itself along the way. I'm inclined to think not. Because Joseph, no doubt, thought a lot about his family, thought a lot about his brothers, wondered maybe what they were doing, where they were, how things were going. The famine has come. Things were getting bleak. No doubt worried about his family, how they were doing in the land of Canaan. And I think, Joseph Joseph was a very sharp guy. I think, thought through the possibility of how he might handle the situation if they came to Egypt for grain. Now, as I was reading different commentaries, it seemed to indicate Joseph did this on, on, on the spur of the moment. And that's possible. But certainly and surely he must have thought about what would happen if his brothers came, how he would respond, what he would do. Well, what he does do is not to reveal himself to them at once. Tempting as that might be, maybe with a uh, little bit of an I told you so attitude, the 17-year-old Joseph probably would have done that. The 30-year-old Joseph didn't do that. He restrained himself from showing them who he was because there were certain things he wanted to learn. He wanted to know what his brothers were like. He wanted to know if they were the the same men who had uh, so callously, heartlessly sold their brother into slavery, into a life of hardship and perhaps even uh, imminent death. And so what we read is in verse 7, when he recognized them, he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Dreams. One dream was fulfilled. They had indeed bowed before him. But he also remembered there was a second dream. That it would not just be their grain, their sheaves bowing down to his, but the stars bowing down to him and the sun and the moon. 
his father and mother. They weren't here. That wasn't happening yet. And so it says he remembered the dreams he had dreamed. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. In other words, you've come to spy out the weaknesses of Egypt. They said to him, no, my lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it's the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers. Note the word, twelve. They acknowledged Joseph in that. The sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. Life of Pharaoh, no doubt an Egyptian uh, expression. uh, The Hebrew expression was give praise to God. Tell the truth. Give glory to God. Well, by the life of Pharaoh must have been the Hebrew equivalent of you know, saying, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm telling the truth here. By the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Now he's testing them. In a sense, he's doing to them what they did to him. He wound up in prison. He wound up confined. He wound up uh, losing his freedom because of what they did. And that's, in effect, what he does to them, not so much to be cruel, but to test them, not to see whether they were spies so much. He knew who, what they were, uh, but rather to test and see if they had changed, to see if they were still heartless, to see if they would still respond the same way to certain brothers that they did to him. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God, Elohim, your God. That would have gotten their attention. And uh, although they had no way of knowing it, there was something implicit about that toward them that perhaps in what they did, they did not fear God. But there's a point of identification. Uh, and I think actually that the, the testimony of Joseph's heart, I fear God. And implied question, do you? Or maybe you don't. Uh, I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. Now, Joseph changes the plan. Plan was they were all going to stay except for one to go back, but it's something of a gracious adjustment, we might say, in Joseph's plan, if in fact he had changed his mind, uh, to let them all go back because of the need to carry grain. And that's probably the reason so many came down to begin with, was to be able to carry back adequate grain to Canaan. And so he allows them to do that, carry back, back grain to their families, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Now, up to this point, uh, we just have Joseph's interaction, but now we have a picture into their own thinking. Verse 21, they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. 
So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Up to this point, he'd been speaking to them in Egyptian. The interpreter interprets, had no way of knowing. Joseph could understand every word they were saying. And yet it was very illuminating for Joseph to hear their discussion because he realized, one, Reuben had, uh, had stood up for him when all of that happened, which he did not know. And they also learn, and Joseph also uh, learns, that there were struggles of conscience. There were feelings of guilt. There was agony in their hearts about what they had done to him. They weren't quite as heartless and calloused as they thought. What they did was terrible, but they couldn't just dismiss it and go get a good night's rest. In fact, they did sit down and eat a meal after this, after they had in the pit there, but um, this bothered them, and Joseph learned that about them. Uh, they recognize uh, that they sinned against him. Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? At least Reuben does. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. A reckoning though not stated, implied, and later comes out, a reckoning from God. I mean, they recognize that uh, what they did was wrong. They, they have some pangs of conscience about it, and they recognize that God in his providence uh, is bringing things around full circle. They didn't know that Joseph could hear them, but this moved Joseph tremendously. Verse 24, he turned away from them and wept. Now, he couldn't let him see that, but he did. He, he, he moved away. And this just broke Joseph's heart to hear them talking about, about him and about what they had done to him and to get this picture of their hearts they didn't have before uh, and had, did not have for these 13 long years. And, he, and, and later, he also weeps at other times. And Joseph, just hearing that, uh, just had to weep. And he returned and spoke to them after he'd composed himself. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. They see him tied up. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Why would he do that? They loaded their donkeys with grain and departed. As one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Why would Joseph put the money back in the sack? Okay, perhaps the appearance that they had stolen the money. Okay. What does that have to do with Simeon, who was left behind? Yeah, I, I think there's, there's something of that in all of this. Um, yeah, the concern, well, what is this money doing here? Uh, he could think we stole it. Um, Seeing their brother bound, uh, receiving their money back, the connection of the money and their brother. Um, quite possible that Joseph wanted to know if they would come back. They'd come back for Simeon. After all, they had their grain, they had their money. Um, the money certainly threw them into confusion, into fear. Uh, and it is interesting, again, that there's that, that Godward direction. At this, their hearts fail them, and they turn trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? So uh, we've seen their, their guilt. We've seen godly fear, second stage in this progression. Uh, it says that their, their, heart, their hearts failed them, uh, the idea of, of being terrified, being afraid. Uh, and in a sense, they are experiencing uh, the the 
the same thing that happened to Joseph. Now one of them is tied up, left in Egypt. They go back. Uh, they receive their money. Well, and then the next stage that they come to um, is that of sorrow. Verse uh, verse 29, when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told them all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We're honest men. We've never been spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. The youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. So Simeon's effectively held as a hostage, and Joseph perhaps was curious to know whether they would come back for him or abandon him, as they did Joseph. They have money, they've got grain, they have themselves. Would they come back for Simeon? In verse 35, as they emptied their sack, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. Jacob really doesn't want to send Benjamin. It's the son he loves, the son of his beloved Rachel, Joseph's full brother, seems that when brothers go with these ten, they don't come back. Joseph, now Simeon, as far as he knows, is, is lost forever. And now you want to take Benjamin. All this has come against me. And then Reuben said to his father, kind of an absurd plan, but certainly an expression of his heart, kill my two sons if I do not bring him, uh, Benjamin, back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, Jacob said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left, uh, son of Rachel. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. In other words, it would be more than I could take. It would just kill me to lose Benjamin. And so this this move from, from a feeling of, of guilt that already was there regarding Joseph and is merely intensified by the accusations, the imprisonment of uh, Simeon, the return of their money, which was was baffling to them. They didn't understand what had happened there. Uh, To this this fear, what has God done to us? Uh, To this, this sorrow that they seem genuinely now to feel with their father Jacob, to the point where uh, Reuben is willing to, to offer his own sons and kill he would do. You can kill your grandsons if I don't bring uh, Benjamin back to you. But it, it is an expression of the sorrow that collectively they now have about the situation in which they find themselves. Um, God was at work in Joseph, but he was also working here in Joseph's brothers. Joseph was far from perfect uh, when the Lord started working on him. Still not perfect, but he'd come a long way. And now the Lord was starting to work on the brothers. Um, Guilt that has festered for a very long time, God was now beginning to work on. But as we look at the stages they came through of guilt, fear, sorrow, we see a pattern. A pattern that God uses in working with people today. Guilt for sin. We talked about that this morning. Forgive us our debts. That, sin, that sense of obligation or debt that we have to God that we can never repay. 
A lot of times people in our society and even in maybe us in our lives try to remove guilt, get rid of guilt, ignore, deny guilt. But some guilt is there because God has placed it there. We are truly guilty before God and should feel a measure of guilt. Sometimes we feel guilty about things that we shouldn't feel guilty for, but there should be a measure of feeling guilty in our hearts because we are guilty before God. But the purpose is to drive us to the cross. The purpose of guilt, as God uses it, is to put us in the way of his grace. Godly fear. What has God done to us? They were terrified. God's not going to let us escape and get away with what we did. And now it's starting to come around. Now uh, this has happened uh, with this ruler in Egypt, with the money, having to leave Simeon bound in prison in Egypt. And now this money's returned. He could accuse us of stealing it, uh, not paying. Uh, what, what, what is God is... He's after us now. We're not going to get away with it. But again, godly fear can be a good thing. Remember John Newton's hymn, was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. God in his grace puts fear of him in our hearts, fear of the consequences of our sin, fear of his judgment, that by that same grace that put the fear there, he might in Christ relieve us of that fear. Godly sorrow. They're, they're grief together now. Uh, certainly Jacob's and even the brothers apparently sharing that. Uh, sorrow as a work of God's grace can be a good thing. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. I would say that godly grief uh, is more the grief of having offended God, having sinned against God, having done something that is, in absolute terms, wrong. Worldly grief is more the, the, the grief that you got caught, you got found out, uh, embarrassed, whatever. Godly grief is, is God's word. It's directed toward God. This godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation. Verse 11, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Godly grief leads to salvation, this godly sorrow. And the amazing thing is, you see these things at work in Joseph's brother. This sense of guilt before God that can lead them in the way of grace, this sense of fear of God and of his not letting them get away with anything, and this, this grief or sorrow together with their father. In our lives, uh, we tend to uh, want to get rid of those things. But sometimes we need to listen to them. Sometimes God brings guilt for a reason. We need to ask, what is this, Lord? What, what are you teaching me here? What do I need to repent of? What do I need to confess to you? What needs to change in my life? A godly fear of God, uh, a fear that... Um, brings us into God's grace and, and relieves our fears of his judgment and also godly sorrow. God uses those things, not only in Joseph's brothers, but he uses them in us as well. And we need to pray that God would use those things not to cast us down, not to tear us apart, but to bring us to Christ, that he might relieve our guilt, that he might calm our fears, that he might comfort our sorrows, even as he was doing that. Injustice, brothers. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves because, Lord, we too are sinners. Uh, like Joseph's brothers, we can be selfish, callous, cold, calculating, greedy, 
easily irritated and provoked. Father, we thank you that as you, in this chapter, uh, begin to show how you're working in them, that you would also be at work in us. We pray, Father, that you would use these things to produce in us godly repentance, genuine uh, grief over sin uh, that would lead to righteousness. Um, A joy, Lord, not because we are righteous in our guilt, but that Christ is righteous for us and he has taken our guilt upon himself. Then all all of these things we would grow as your people, grow in our usefulness to you, grow in our likeness to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.